Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Top U.S. and Chinese officials have met face-to-face for the first time since President Joe Biden took office. The customary diplomatic pleasantries were quickly thrown aside. The two powers launched into scathing indictments, calling each side's national character into question. Two days of tense U.S.-China talks in Alaska wrapped up Friday, with the Chinese delegation leaving without comment. You're as cold as ice. It's kind of amazing the symbolism of it all like the meeting in ice cold alaska the ice cold diplomacy of it all it's almost like two on the nose for me <laughs> you know like yeah do you know you know that song like cold as ice by foreigner i, I feel like they should have just blasted that song in the background while they were talking just to make it like even more on the nose <laughs> i need to go to spotify right away <laughs> I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today... I'm Stuart Lau. I'm the EU-China correspondent for Political Europe. Stuart Lau on the ice-cold, sometimes testy, diplomatic meetings between the U.S. and China. And what's next between the two countries under the Biden administration? So just to give you a little bit of background, this is the first face-to-face direct meeting between the top diplomats from the Chinese side and also from the US side under the new Biden administration. Mm -hmm. And so both sides really saw this as an opportunity to get to sit down to talk to each other amid the background of so much bipartisan consensus in the US about, you know, a tough line on China. My concern from the beginning, I've spoke about it, is to make it real clear to China There are international rules that if you want to play by, we'll play with you. If you don't, we're not going to play. And so I think, you know, both sides really saw this as an opportunity to sort of get to know the bottom line of each other. All right. So they set up this meeting. They have this opportunity to get to know each other better under the new administration. And... Last Thursday, a group of U.S. officials led by Secretary of State Antony Blinken meet in ice-cold Alaska with their counterparts from China. What happens? I mean, it was as frosty as the weather suggests, really. There were a lot of extraordinary interaction. Welcome back. Well, the first face-to-face meeting between U.S. and communist Chinese officials under the Biden administration. Off to a hostile start, with the two sides clashing over cybersecurity and human rights issues, and ultimately power. The key disputes center on three or four talking points. So the first one is really on democracy, you know, what's happening in Hong Kong and Xinjiang and Tibet. China warned the United States to stop interfering in its affairs, including Hong Kong. On Thursday, the U.S. condemned the country's move to change Hong Kong's electoral system further reducing democratic representation in the city's institutions. And so they did highlight that. And I think what's really fascinating was, you know, they were talking about it during the opening remarks when the media cameras were all there. We'll also discuss our deep concerns with actions by China, including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States, economic coercion toward our allies. You know, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, made those remarks um, sort of, you know, within the two-minute time frame, you know, maybe a few more seconds extra. Each of these actions threaten the rules-based order that maintains global stability. That's why they're not merely internal matters and why we feel an obligation uh, to raise these issues uh, here today. 
But then the Chinese side, um, Yang Jiechi, the top diplomat from China, he went way beyond the time limit. You know, he went on for like 16 minutes, wow. you know, laying out what China wants the U.S. audience to hear about. China is firmly opposed to U.S. interference in China's internal affairs. We have expressed our staunch opposition to such interference, and we will take firm actions in response. You know, basically criticizing every single aspect of the U.S. system, you know, the U.S. version of democracy, which basically, you know, China was saying, you know, oh, how dare you, the U.S., how could you, you know, preach democracy everywhere? It doesn't work that way. China has made steady progress in human rights. And the fact is that there are many problems within the United States regarding human rights and the challenges facing the United States in human rights are deep-seated. They did not just emerge over the past four years, such as Black Lives Matter. It did not come up only recently. So we do hope that for our two countries, it's important that we manage our respective affairs well, instead of deflecting the blame on somebody else in this world. They also have, like, um, disputes about whether the, the media should be there because, you know, after the first two rounds, when the media were supposed to be packing and leaving, um, Anthony Blinken basically asked the media to stop, wow. you know, stop leaving, stay there because, you know, the Chinese side totally overran their time. So mm -hmm. let's give us the chance to sort of, you know, comment on those remarks. I have to tell you, in my, my short time as Secretary of State, I've spoken to, I think, nearly 100 counterparts uh, from around the world. Uh, I'm hearing deep satisfaction that the United States is back, that we're re-engaged with our allies and partners. I'm also hearing deep concern about some of the actions your government is taking. Okay, so the first day of talks, or at least what we see of them on camera, not behind closed doors, are ice cold. Um, critical back and forths, disputes about the time that each side is able to talk in in front of the media. It all sounds pretty testy, pretty, pretty wild to me. Yeah. Were you surprised by how all of this went down? I guess everyone was kind of surprised. I guess even the U.S. delegation was kind of surprised by, you know, how far the Chinese side would hmm. go to put up this confrontational stance. Well, I think we thought too well of the United States. We thought that the U.S. side will follow the necessary diplomatic protocols. So for China, it was necessary that we make our position clear. Because, you know, Yang Jiechi himself, the Chinese top diplomat, he has been in, you know, working on U.S.-China relations for a long, long time, almost like four decades. And then he had really good relationship with some Republican administrations in the past as well. And so he, he wasn't really known to be the sort of wolf warrior that we like to associate with modern day, you know, Chinese diplomats. He's mm -hmm. more like an old school, old Chinese hand on U.S. policy. So I think the U.S. delegation themselves was, were also taken a little bit by surprise by not just, you know, the lengthy remarks and so on, but also the readiness with which, you know, the Chinese side would go on the offensive and attack the U.S. system. When talking about universal values or international public opinion on the part of the United States, we hope the U.S. side will think about whether it feels reassured saying those things. Because the U.S. does not represent the world, it only represents the government of the United States. But then if you look at what Trump has been doing over the last four years and the Chinese reaction building up, 
maybe it's not really that surprising after all. Mm. So day one, testy, maybe a little surprising. What about day two? What happens then? So the second day did seem to be a little bit calmer. And then, you know, the Chinese diplomats were saying there had been a candid, constructive sort of dialogue. And um, the same could be said on the US side, you know, um, Blinken, he was saying that, you know, it wasn't really a surprise for him, like China would behave in such a way because there were indeed a lot of disagreements. Um, But then overall, I think the the tone from the US administration was that, you know, they were clear eyed coming in, they were clear eyed coming out. We we certainly know and knew going in uh, that uh, there are a number of areas where we are fundamentally uh, at odds, uh, including uh, China's actions in Xinjiang uh, with regard to, uh, to Hong Kong, Tibet. Um, so really it's about managing the confrontation rather than, you know, eliminating the confrontation. I mean, the confrontation is probably here going to stay. The, the question really is, you know, keeping those dialogue channels open and sort of, you know, trying to avoid any unexpected sort of surprises. What do you make of all of this in the end? Like, was it productive for either side to sort of have these fireworks the first day to, you know, kind of have more productive talks the second day? Did either side accomplish anything here? That's a good question. So it really depends on, you know, how the U.S. administration is going to take everything forward, because from the Chinese perspective, even I think a lot of what the two sides will do in future does depend on what the Biden administration will do. Um, because, you know, the US is still the number one economy. It still controls a lot of key technology. In a lot of areas, China would probably think that they're in a relatively passive position. Hmm. I mean, if we look at the next week, for example, the US, you know, um, Secretary Blinken is going to be visiting Europe. He'll be meeting his counterparts in NATO, in the European Union. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, right before he met the Chinese officials in Alaska, he was also in Japan and South Korea to really try to, you know, build up a stronger alliance from the US perspective. Well, Well, do you think that's something we could see more of, like with this visit to the EU, especially coming out of these talks with China, are you expecting to see sharper lines forming with a U.S. alliance and like the EU drawn more into the U.S.'s feud with China? Well, in a way where, for example, a few years ago, it would be unthinkable for the European Union to talk about like confronting China because it's a big market for a lot of European car makers, you know, machine makers, you name it. But then nowadays, even a lot of the EU officials are talking about like systemic rivalry with China. They're talking about, you know, putting up human rights sanctions against, you know, Xinjiang officials. And so there is some sort of increased appetite for the Europeans to work with America. But um, I I think we shouldn't be expecting like an all in sort of partnership because after all, there is still a lot of business interest from the European side in China. And that is going to to stay there, even though there will be a lot of confrontation with the US. So it really depends on, you know, what the US intends to do with the EU in the next coming week, and you know, whether it's going to be on trade, on technology, or on human rights. So perhaps a little bit worrying from China's perspective. Stuart Lau, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. 
Also today, with the backdrop of rallies in cities across the country, several Democratic lawmakers are calling last week's deadly shootings in Georgia that left eight dead, including six Asian women, a hate crime, and are condemning attacks directed at Asian Americans. Speaking to ABC on Sunday, Representative Judy Chu, the first Chinese-American woman elected to Congress, said, quote, The legal bar is high because they have to find somebody who heard him say that there was an anti-Asian slur expressed at the time. But in my mind, and in the minds of many, this is an anti-Asian hate crime. A notion that was echoed by Senator Tammy Duckworth, who says she disagrees with statements that the attacks weren't racially motivated. Their comments come as hundreds of demonstrators gathered in Atlanta and other cities across the U.S. over the weekend to demand justice for victims of the shootings and to denounce a rise in violence against Asians and Asian Americans. And Louisiana Republican Julia Letlow has won a special election to fill the House seat one last year by her now late husband, who died in December from coronavirus. On Saturday, Letlow took 62% of the vote in a 12-way race, clearing the threshold needed to avoid a runoff. Her election brings the number of Republican women in Congress to 31, a stunning turnaround from the end of last cycle when there were just 13. Subscribe to Politico Dispatch wherever you get your podcasts. And to continue to track Stuart Lau's coverage of China, subscribe to the China Direct newsletter, which he authors. You can find a link to that in this episode's show notes. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.